You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming out on this cold afternoon. <laughs> We've had a lot of that this week, but very happy that you all joined us. My name is Sadia. I'm the curator of the public programs at Asia Topa. And um, I would first like to uh, start with acknowledging that we're gathering um, on the land of the Yalukud Willem, uh, who are one of the um, who are part of the uh, Boon Rong, one of the um, five major languages of the Kulin nations. And I would like to remember that um, on this land was never ceded, and um, I would like to pay our respects to their elders and ancestors, past, present, and into the future. I'm very happy um, to be today in the presence of Jamie Lewis and all of you really wonderful ladies. Um, um, this program is part of the lunchtime talks at M Pavilion, so that's a month-long uh, program running at M Pavilion, and we have more um, talks and panels like this over lunchtime um, until the 15th of March. Um, I think, Jamie, I will leave it there and, and let you introduce all the ladies that you brought today. Great. Oh, yeah, you have. Okay. Um, hi, everyone. Um, I guess to start, I'm going to start here. I'm going to start by sharing um, a response to an interview I did last year as part of, um, for Liminal Magazine. Um, I was asked in that interview, what does being Asian Australian mean to you? And this was my response. It's a label other Asian Australians put on me. Growing up in an identity-obsessed Singapore, where C-M-I-O, acronyms for Chinese, Malay, Indian, others, was a constant marker and boxes to tick, I ticked the box of other, please specify, Eurasian. In that alone, my otherness is also so much more nuanced and layered than being non-Australian or Asian-Australian. I also relate the word Australian to nationality, of which I'm not. I still hold my Singapore passport and will probably never ever give it up for as long as I have family there. And so I struggle with referring to myself as Australian. I reckon, I reckon a big part of the distance is also that I moved here as an adult. And whilst I bring my own complexities of growing up mixed race in Singapore, I've always been very certain and confident of my identity here, carrying an embodied privilege as the majority. In the context of Singapore, that means middle income, educated, can speak Mandarin, that kind of majority, um, while in the midst of living and working in white Australia. I suppose I tend to say Singaporean Eurasian living in Australia. And maybe that too is about remembering home is many places all at once and that I'm only a guest on these unceded lands. And so I too want to acknowledge that we are here on the lands of the Bunurang and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to the elders, past, present and future um, and to any First Nations people here with us today. We are joined by five incredible women. Uh, who have just as varied a way in which they have come to now live and work in Nam, Melbourne. Like me, they all wear and juggle many hats across their personal and professional lives. 
And in that, a multiplicity of each of us which shapes the way in which we move in this world today. And I have invited them to come and share provocation um, from, the same, from this lens that we all share. Yu uh, Hui, a performance maker who makes, often makes work with non-performers. Uh, Mum, recently certified swimming uh, teacher. <laughs> and a fellow Singaporean. Uh, Priya Pavri, curator with a big heart for social justice, director of Re Road to Refuge, general manager at Next Wave, and a co-founder of I Had One Too. And I'll let, I'll let them also tell you more about what they do in their provocations. Um, Elisa Tanaka-King, an artist working across non-traditional forms, combining installation, drawn line, live performance, and cooking. Sandra Tan, a Melbourne-born Filipino writer, editor of Den Fair, um, also advisor for the Entree Penais. Have a big heart in trying to promote Australian uh, Filipino food culture here in Australia, um, which she has so graciously recommended, Boba Bar, which you're enjoying. Um, and Shimona Sampson, creative strategist by day, uh, facilitator by day, jazz vocalist by night, and co-founder of a company called Humi. Um, so since it's not such a big group, so we'll kind of do this all as a group. Um, and what I might do is pass a mic so that they can share their provocations and then just kind of take that conversation quite casually and meander through um, the rest of the afternoon. Um, yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Um, and also, please reach over, bring the food closer. Um, we are eating and talking at the same time. Uh, the more... Yeah, okay. Yes. Well, maybe I'll let Sandra tell us what it is. Yeah, and then we can go from there. Hello. Um, so, everything that we have here today is from a uh, small business run by a single Filipina girl, young girl, um, that is a friend of mine uh, called Boba Bar. She does pop-ups, and Boba is bubble tea, um, so milk-based tea with, like, um, sago pearls in it. Um, she, that is the kind of core of her business, but she also does catering. Um, so everything that we have here today uh, is vegetarian, apart from the pork crackling chips. Um, and we have, yeah, <laughs> we have on the right-hand side, um, I think they're all the same, the boxes, uh, vegetarian empanada, uh, which is a savoury Filipino um, pastry. Um, cuchinta, uh, which is... Uh, it's like a steamed rice cake um, with freshly grated coconut. Then we have another steamed rice cake. Um, so uh, the majority of pre-colonial Filipino sweets are, uh, are rice-based, um, like a lot of desserts are, I suppose, in, all through Southeast Asia and Asia, I suppose. Um, whereas the empanada comes through from the... Uh, colonial Spanish who colonized for uh, upwards of 300, 400 years. Um, the purple thing in the corner is called Ubehalaya, which is purple yam jam. So, uh, as we can see, there's a lot of carbs happening <laughs> here. Um, uh, carbs and um, sweet potato root vegetables are a bit of a staple. Uh, and this is, we would have it as a dessert rather than um, as you might have a mashed potato is, is savoury in, in Western uh, 
culinary tradition. Uh, on the sort of top right-hand corner that we have a achara pickle, uh, which is a fresh pickle, uh, usually of white radish uh, and carrot, um, which we use as a condiment for all of our meats. Um, and lastly, the fried uh, sort of thing in the middle is uh, called, what is it called? Cascaron, um, which is a Filipino donut covered in brown sugar. So please enjoy. <laughs> um, my mother said, don't be shy. If you're shy, you lose out. So please um, help yourself. Um, like I said, the conversation will just flow, we'll eat and talk. Um, there may be silence. Silence is also a, an act of radical participation. Um, so don't feel like you need to say something um, as well. But also, it's a safe space. I will hold this space. You can trust me. Um, and might pass it to Shimona to start with the, um, the provocations as we go down through the group. Um, also, when you're using the mic, I mean, you're a singer, but telling everyone else, if you're talking through the mic, um, Ollie's looking at, yeah. Your Great. Well done, that's one of my pet peeves too. <laughs> um, so yeah, my name is Shimona. I'm a singer. I've been a singer for about 20 years in Singapore, in Thailand, and now I'm in Melbourne. I've been here for six years. Um, I find it interesting um, just thinking about diversity. So I had a chat, and maybe I'll just share this with you to help you think about maybe similar experiences in your own life. Um, we hear about how diversity is important. We hear about that um, diversity in the workplace is good for collaboration and things like that. Um, but one of the very interesting um, real-life scenarios I've had recently was when I was actually having a conversation with um, my business partner, who's from the UK. And so he, self-admittedly, he says, you know, very typical, I'm a very white male, and so my perspective is very different than yours. He'll say things like that. And so one day I was telling him about a little bit of a story about a friend of mine who recently realized something about herself and how that kind of stemmed from a, the childhood canings we got. So this is a little bit sensitive, but I'm just going to say, put it out there. Um, most, a lot of us, when we were growing up in Asian culture, I'm, I mean, well, I speak for myself, but canings are not, you know, unheard of. Um, and I guess the only difference would be how often you get it. So I, when I mentioned this to him and I said, oh, I understand her point of view because, you know, my parents would came me now and then too. And then he went, huh? And it was interesting because in seeing his reaction, it made me double take and think about what I had just said because it was so normal for me to identify in that same way as my other Asian friend, whereas a friend of mine, you know, that friend of mine from the UK, saw that as completely shocking. And um, it made me spend a whole day kind of reeling, thinking about my childhood and thinking, what impact might that have had on my growing up years? Um, not that my, ch my parents abused me or anything, but it was one of those things. You, you kind of think, oh yeah, I get punished because when, it, when it's necessary, if it's part of life, things have changed since then, of course. Um, but it made me reflect on my cultural upbringing and 
how that impacted my personality. And that would not actually have been possible if I had not been in conversation with someone completely different than me. So I find that ever since coming to Melbourne and living in a more Western country, for example, my, my cultural upbringing has become a bit more evident to me. And part of that has been very helpful in helping me find areas of my personality or things about myself that I was not aware of as I was growing up. And as a woman now, I'm kind of thinking about how this impacts my future and my bringing up children and things like that. So, um, yeah, as that provocation, maybe if you can think about any instances where you've kind of surprised yourself and gone, oh, that's completely second nature to my culture, but I never thought it would be something surprising um, to someone else. Anyone would like to share? We'll eat yummy food for a bit. Thanks. Um, my name is Priya. Um, I'm still working out what I am, so I'm not sure what the next line should be. But I have the privilege of doing lots of really amazing work with amazing communities here in now Melbourne. Um, the refugee community, the emerging arts community through Next Wave, um, with amazing women um, and people in the health profession that share stories about abortion and other access to health. So I feel like I, like Jamie said, wear many, many hats and sort of think about community in lots of different ways. But when I was thinking about this, this particular conversation, um, and the idea of Asian Australian. I think um, this is the first time um, in 28 years of living um, on stolen Indigenous land here that I've been considered an Asian Australian, which is interesting to me because um, my parents and my family, um, they are living in Mumbai, India, which is part of Asia, but um, for some reason in our consciousness here, um, India is not really considered a part of, I guess, Asia or what it is to be Asian um, in the sort of expanded broad street chat kind of way. And um, so I was thinking this idea of like what it would mean to start, I guess, owning that term and that phrase and start challenging people's perceptions of what that is. But then I kind of started thinking about this, this default we go to here about you being something Australian, like you're Asian Australian, you are Indian Australian, you are something Australian. And I think for me, there's, um, there's power in taking that and owning that and owning where your heritage and your family comes from. And I've spoken to some Palestinian friends and for them, it's like an act of defiance to hold on to that identity and make sure that's heard. But then the other part of me, there's the frustrated, annoying, annoyed part who is constantly put in a box because of identity kind of wants to challenge that notion and maybe everyone else to think about, especially people that have had Anglo white heritage, what it would mean for you to put a title before Australian. What would it mean to be English Australian or Irish Australian or I don't know, Australian from the county of somewhere or convict Australian, for example, or settler Australian. And I just think, yeah, I guess my provocation to everyone is to kind of think about um, what that would mean and how would it feel to introduce yourself or in your bio when someone asks you to be a part of something that it would be because you are, yeah, a convict Australian. Um, and 
maybe that's just something we can start thinking about when we talk about, yeah, communities in Australia and identity that actually, like, all these different things, all these different places that we put before Australia and make up this idea of Australia, especially for me. Um, and if it doesn't and if that's not how it works, then none of us are Australian because there were our first peoples that were here and they are the only true Australians. So, I don't know. I think I've, that's what I've been thinking about today in the lead-up to this and this place and this space and this land. Um, and I was really, really hit by that when I was walking in and saw those tents over there and seeing, like, well, this and those people are here in Australian and yeah we're all visitors and guests and maybe we need to start acknowledging that more clearly all of us not just those who've come from park backgrounds so thank you hi I'm Yu Hui um, so I've got a couple of pair words and I'm going to get all of you to put up your hand and decide which you are all right so the first pair of words I have are exhibitionist or voyeur. So I'll give you five seconds to think about it, but don't think about it too much. <laughs> Who has chosen exhibitionist? Yep. And who has chosen voyeur? The next pair of words I have are insider or outsider. Who has chosen insider? And who has chosen outsider? Yeah. The next pair of words, mundane or theatrical? Who has chosen mundane? Who has chosen theatrical? Okay, last pair, last pair of words. Reality or fiction? Who has chosen reality? Who has chosen fiction? Okay, who found it very easy to pick? You knew straight away which you were. Okay, I suppose everyone found it a bit hard to decide. Um, and either way, it doesn't really matter. I suppose it's a reflection on how we are different in different contexts. Um, and so like Jamie, I would never think of myself as Asian-Australian. I grew up in Singapore and I've lived in Geelong for eight years. Um, I also don't think about the work I make as... Asian-Australian or overtly Asian-Australian in, in thematic. In fact, I probably haven't really thought about identity politics for a really long time. And so in responding to Jamie's, um, I guess, provocation, um, I was thinking about multipli multiplicity, which is such a mouthful, um, of identity in terms of my arts practice and how these are some of the, pair, the pairs of words, uh, some of the ways that I think about um, my process and my arts practice, which as Jamie shared, often happens with non-artists. So I, I suppose for those of you who are not in the arts, and that might be a bit vague, to give you an example, I'm currently working 
um, with a group of gym enthusiasts to create a performance. Um, and in our practice, we often talk about these non-artists as experts of their everyday lives with very special skills that we don't have. So with these gym, gym experts, they are very fit, you know, or they're really good at a ki particular kind of fitness. Um, or in the past, we've worked with people who live in Footscray to open up their homes and to perform in the work. And we're not interested in them being very good performers in the conventional way that we understand it. We are interested in their own ways of performing themselves. Um, or I've also made a performance with my three-year-old um, and my collaborator who decided not to have a child and I had just had a child and so we made a work about that. Um, and so I find that often in these situations, I'm negotiating those roles of being a voyeur and exhibitionist, being watched, but also being a spy or a creep and observing people who are very unsuspecting at the beginning. Or in terms of being an insider and outsider, like at the gym, I'm from Geelong, Carenza's not. But she gets a lot of the Aussie banter that I don't get. So I'm both an insider, but also an outsider. Um, and in terms of the mundane and the theatrical, um, we love in our work aesthetically just juxtaposing very domestic kind of boring things. In fact, one of my favourite conferences, which I one day want to attend, which is happening in the UK, soon. It's called The Boring Conference. We find The Boring quite theatrical and we like um, contrasting that. Um, and I guess with the reality and fiction, um, we love playing with the boundaries of what's real and not real. Um, so yeah, these are just some pairs of words um, that I offer up, um, which are ways that I view my arts practice, which I think are also words that we can use to think about um, who we are here in this community, uh, whether it's our cultural identity or otherwise. Hello, I'm Sandra. Um, so uh, unlike a couple of uh, Shimona and Yuhui, um, I was born in Melbourne. Um, so I suppose my journey has been quite interesting in that uh, my parents are Filipino. I'm first generation Australian. Um, and for probably most of my life, uh, I thought that I knew, I had a, a, an assumption about what uh, being Filipino meant uh, to me and to my family. And um, I thought I was pretty, you know, all, all across it, like totally knew it. And I would be comfortable bringing that into, uh, you know, a school environment or, you know, in the, as I was, when I was growing up uh, in the playground or um, owning that identity. But the older I get, the more I realize that, uh, that how little I actually know about the experience of being Filipino. Um, so my a uh, big part of my journey in the last few, couple of years has really been um, almost retrospectively uh, looking back at my life and, and understanding which parts of my own self um, and the people around me are Filipino. Um, and which parts, you know, come about because we are Australian and whether there's any importance in making that distinction or whether as a third culture, I suppose, we're creating something new. So there's maybe perhaps not any point in, in um, reinforcing that dichotomy um, because it's uncharted territory to a certain degree. Um, one thing that um, I would like to put to uh, this conversation um, is something that I th think comes about because in certain circles I th I'm 
not I'm a bit of a chameleon so it's not ultimately obvious to people immediately um, maybe where I come from and so therefore people can cast judgment or um, or sort of make assumptions in their own way and I think what is interesting to me and, and certainly something that I've been thinking about in the lead up to this talk is um, what are those things that um, that make us duplicitous uh, in the in the way that we operate in the world um, and um, what are the privileges and, and maybe the disadvantages that we all um, share um, or maybe don't share. Um, so that's something that I'm looking at uh, in my working life um, in the design industry, which is, I think, still quite closed. It's not as diverse as the world that I see around me when I walk around, when I leave my front door. Um, so that idea of, of privilege is, is very interesting to me um, and I think it's something that is useful to sit with and just understand for yourself. Um, yeah. Hello. Hi. Oh, sorry. Did that bounce back or is it just here's okay? All right, good. Um, I'm Elisa uh, and uh, I am also Australian born uh, and have had an interesting experience being Eurasian because people's ideas of what I am have often influenced what I feel I am, which I think is interesting. Um, and as a kind of semi-awkward way of having this conversation, I'm sitting directly opposite my parents, who are very kindly here. <laughs> so you can sort of see and decide which one I look more like. <laughs> um, um, I think, uh, interestingly too, I don't, at the moment particularly with pink hair, present um, as immediately Asian or recognisably Asian um, and that's not something that has been the case just because I've had pink or blonde or purple or whatever colour hair I've had from um, probably the age of about 15 or 16 people have wondered uh, what my background is up until then I looked quite convincingly Asian um, it's funny how things change <laughs> um, but the most common question that or not a statement I suppose that I had as a child yeah up until my teens uh, was oh you're half Japanese you're so lucky and I was like oh okay didn't really get a choice it's, it's what it is um, and yes, absolutely, incredibly lucky. I'm lucky that I was born to interesting parents who cared about incorporating that culture in my life, but I have also never known anything different. So it's quite a strange statement to make. And then from the age of about 15 or 16 up until regularly now, people will either say, what are you? Or when I tell them about my Asian heritage, they'll be like, no, no, you're not. And I'm like, no, no, I, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I'm aware. Um, and so within me, that's always sort of sat in just a kind of mix of day to day. I definitely find that um, when I'm in Australia, I am much more Australian. I've spent a lot of time in Japan. When I'm in Japan, I take on many Japanese traits um, that make it that don't apply when I'm here. So uh, for those of you who may not know, in Japan, you don't uh, walk and eat, for instance. You won't buy some finger food and walk down the street munching on an ice cream. And I do that here all the time. I will regularly go and buy an ice cream and walk down the street or buy some sort of snack. I go to Japan, I'm like, oh no, I couldn't possibly do that. It's not even a fear of what other people might think of me. It's the, oh no, I, I think it might be bad for my stomach. 
you know, because it applies differently on the other side of the equator. <laughs> um, so I think when looking at that as I've sort of evolved in my arts practice as well, I come from a visual arts background um, and still work very visually predominantly, that's my first step. Um, I've always sort of moved towards storytelling as a way of processing everything, whether it's communicating, whether it's understanding something, whether it's just entertaining myself or other people around me, hopefully. Um, and through uh, my sort of teenage and 20s, um, early 20s, Japan and Japanese culture wasn't at the forefront of my mind particularly, um, uh, probably because I didn't really know how to connect with it and contextualise it in my life that was going on here. And it was then through um, independently kind of revisiting Japan through its art scene and through its food as an adult that I think it came back to me to mean things. Um, so I have since, you know, finishing studying, visited Japan many times of my own accord as opposed to just with my family um, and have made friends in Japan that are now my friends as opposed to family. Um, and I have my own stories within Japan that are meaningful outside of what kind of heritage I hold there. Um, and then alongside that, I have been working um, in Ballarat uh, with uh, community, the community there, for coordinating a community arts program, which initially was just a job to pay the bills, but has actually become a really fundamental part of my arts practice as well. And I look a lot at the cultural sort of diversity in that area versus the cultural diversity in Richmond where I live. Um, there's a huge Asian influence in Richmond and I feel quite at home there. Whereas when I talk about Asian influences in Ballarat, I feel like very few people understand that as something that is quite normal to them. Um, and there's a huge refugee uh, population in Ballarat as well, who've entered the space there. And the most successful story of in, like cultural integration that I've seen is a man who has started a restaurant. Um, it's, he's Ethiopian and he started an Ethiopian restaurant in the centre of Ballarat and it's one of the most successful restaurants in town. It is amazing how food can bring people together. Like, exactly like we are today. Um, it's certainly something that I've been exploring in my own arts practice, but also just in my daily life. Um, and I think I was thinking about it about a year ago when I was doing an interview for an article around food and art. Um, the beauty that you see of food in Australia is such a representation of what the cultural landscape looks at like at the moment in terms of fusion food, Australian interpretation of food, restaurants that are incorporating native ingredients more and more. Um, I'm definitely interested in the conversation of where um, we can incorporate more Indigenous influence in food, but how that tells a story in such a simple, beautiful way that is so successful compared to so many initiatives that we see that are trying to make people connect. Um, and I think, you know, maybe it's also because I love food. It's definitely a, a big factor. Um, but that's sort of where I've come to sit very happily with who I am and where I fit within the culture here. And I'm really excited about where that goes as well. So that's my... Um, 
Thank you. Um, and it's quite a breath of um, provocations there or, or things to think about. Um, I know some of you in the audience, um, so I might just actually direct some specific questions, and, um, but then inviting the people I don't know to join in whenever. Um, Dan, <laughs> as the... <laughs> um, I'll speak on behalf of white people and yeah, blokes everywhere. Yeah, so. uh, Dan, Dan is a very close collaborator, so I feel like I can, I can do this. Um, as the one um, white man in this audience, I, I kind of want to put Priya's provocation to you um, in terms of, you know, like a dash Australian and, and what that means. So for somebody who, you know, who I know, you, you, you were born here and grew up here, have a very kind of local Melbourne, not just here in Australia, but actually have a very local Melbourne um, relationship with this place. Um, yeah, I want to put Priya's question to you and what are some of your thoughts there? Yeah, first of all, I hope I don't talk too long. I, I'm really enjoying listening in this context. But when you were speaking, I was thinking about my own experience. of um, I lived overseas for a while, so I went and lived in London. And, and I kind of lived overseas in a way of living in Queensland, which was really different to Victoria. And so a lot of those uh, things that I hadn't been challenged by came to me in that, in that, that five-year period, which was really interesting and, and really healthy for me as well. And... Oh, well, I find this conversation always really tricky because um, on one side of my family it's English, on the other side of my family it's Dutch-German and that's already three really complicated things because if you talk of the north of England and the south of England that's very different. Um, the, the fine detail of what it means to be Dutch-German or Dutch and German, that's quite complex as well. So I, I actually don't identify with any of that, although I, I recognise the influence of that on the, the wider culture, especially England. That's clearly obvious in the colonial and invasion context. But I think of my partner as well, who um, is an eighth Chinese, an eighth Russian, um, has English and da-da-da-da. And, and, and like, where, does it, where do the bloodlines stop? I, I don't know. It's kind of maybe to me more interesting, at least in my own life, to think about the context that I'm in and how that wider culture has influenced me rather than the bloodline. Um, and, and in the context of that, then, what, what might that hyphen be? It's just a long hyphen. There's a lot of hyphens, isn't there? So, I mean, if, if I'm in a big context now, I'll say that I was born on Wurundjeri country and I kind of had to do a very different kind of explanation of who I am now. But that's, it's taken a really long time to get to that. I mean, the first 30 years of my life, maybe, I didn't have that way of speaking. I kind of let my life context maybe describe who I am rather than the kind of labels. Mm. But I'm totally unresolved. Mm. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, I'm more in response to yours. Um, I, and kind of in response to Dan's as well, of like how many hyphens. At what point, I'm interested in as well, do you stop hyphenating, I suppose, and become something else? Like, at what po if, if I have a child, I'm married to a white man who has Irish heritage. If I have a child, they will be a quarter, you know, Japanese with an Irish influence, with a German influence, with, a, you know, wh where, does it, where does it morph into something else, I suppose, is what I'm interested in too. And there might not be a right answer. 
the way that I come to that um, kind of conundrum, I suppose, in my life is um, my surname is Tan, which is Chinese, but I don't identify as Chinese because the Chinese relative that I did have, I never met. It was my great-grandfather on my dad's side, so I've got the surname. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely no connection to the Chinese side of myself apart from I enjoy Chinese food. Um, and the interesting thing about that is um, maybe moving around in Melbourne, that doesn't really mean so much. But when I'm in Asia, it becomes more significant because, um, and, and that's where this idea of, um, you know, I think we, we talk a lot or um, there's this idea of maybe white supremacy or white um, driven narratives. Um, but actually, in Asia, there's a whole other there's a whole other hierarchy that I think people outside of that don't necessarily understand. And um, me having a Chinese surname kind of casts a lens over who I am, which has nothing to do with me personally whatsoever. But um, you know, I, uh, there's a lot of assumptions that my family are good in business, that we are rich, and we're not rich. Um, uh, and I just find it so interesting because, yeah, I'm technically in that sense an eighth. Chinese, um, and yet I, I have I have no no connection to that culture. So um, it's it's almost interesting what the assumptions people make of you um, as a person without you having any any kind of influence over it. Um, and I also get told that I look Chinese, which I don't think I do. Not that I have an issue with that, but it just it it's very strange that people will have a certain way of thinking. Um, and here in Australia that it's it's a whole framework that just does not exist like i'll be talking to the people that i my friends are all different cultures i don't probably up until a few years ago i didn't actually have a lot of asian friends um intentionally or not but i didn't grow up um in a very uh asian asian dense uh area of melbourne um so those kinds of ways of understanding like the fact that i'm a chinese filipina it's not relevant so i don't have to kind of think about it or or I guess in some senses perform any kind of to any expectation yeah want mm. to invite any other thoughts from anybody else I was actually reflecting on your your comment that we're, we're all pretty hyphenated and at what point does it stop um, finding out just as my dad was dying that my grandmother was Viennese Jewish and I had hosted Shabbat spheres because I had a lot of Jewish friends without knowing that. Um, and, yeah, and then finding out at another point I'm part Algonquin and all these threads which have landed in Melbourne and I think we're probably all fairly complex genetic mixes that we probably don't even understand how, what the impact is on us mm. with the complexity of epigenetics, with the complexity of <clears throat> being affected 14 generations down the line by people whose names probably aren't even still in our oral histories or family mm. trees. Um, I feel like I should make a summary point. I don't have one. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to at all. Um, yeah, I also wonder, you know, it's an interesting one when we... we um, the lines between speaking about ethnicity, culture, um, 
and, and culture as if they are always the same as well. Um, so I just also want to counter put that out there that um, there's capital C culture um, and small letter C culture uh, and cultures um, that also the hyphens don't always have to refer to bloodlines mm. and ethnicity um, <coughs> and culture isn't necessarily limited to belonging to one ethnicity. Um, just to put that back out there, but Sadia, you had something. Yeah, actually, maybe that connects a little bit to that. And maybe just also to give you a bit of context, because I actually come from a different context. I'm Jakarta-based, but and I was born in Indonesia, but I grew up in the Netherlands with a Dutch family. I now also have know my Indonesian family, so now I'm sort of like in between. But I've traveled a lot. I've lived... Um, um, in Greece, in the UK, in New York. Uh, I live now in Indonesia and spend spending some more time here. So for me, it's very interesting to see that every time I move somewhere else and be part of kind of like life there, that everyone always projects a different image on me. So um, very different, like in, 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 in the Netherlands, there is still a very Orientalist, a very Eurocentric gaze on um, women of color and especially Indonesian women. So I'm always objectivized and orientalized and sexualized. If you go to the UK, it's almost the complete opposite. In, in New York, it's different again. Here, it's different again. So I sort of like have always, now I've really, over the past few years, I've come to the conclusion, you know, it's not really me. It's not necessarily about me. It's more about, you know, images and uh, stereotypes that societies in different parts of the world have constructed and then everybody tries to fit me in a certain box and I never fit. So, um, yeah, I think I've just come to accept that and now just try to be who I am. And But it makes it a little bit different because people always push you to, oh, where are you from or what are you? And I'm like, I really don't know what I should tell you, mm. which I think is okay. <laughs> It's not me, it's actually you. Uh, yeah. um, when everyone was talking, and especially you, Dan, when you were sort of responding to that question, I was kind of thinking, I understand that there's a big international context here, but if we just think about the context of where we are for a minute, um, and the, I guess the hierarchy that sits with something Australian, and what it would mean for us to all take on the label of like non-Indigenous Australian rather than this like group being like Indigenous Australian that sits over here as another. If we all collectively took on that label, it would flatten out the hierarchy and, yeah. and flatten out the structure and also flatten out the hierarchy in what it means to be Asian Australian or Euro Australian or all those sorts of things. And that would be maybe an interesting way to start thinking about this idea of Australian, but then also everyone else's sort of cultural differences, and then there's no, like, which fragment of my heritage or history do I acknowledge? It's just like a, oh, I come from somewhere else, or have something from somewhere else that makes a part of me. I was just working on a document at work the other day, and um, this program is open to artists from Aotearoa, New Zealand, in brackets. And I was thinking how we don't have the language yet to say, how are you from this place in, in the language that isn't a colonial language, because Australia is not a native word, an indigenous word. And it just there's a complete failure of being able to even start that conversation. In the office, we just talked about it for 15 minutes, and we realised we don't even know where to begin on that, actually. And it's just one word of like, what is this place called? 
Yeah. And I, I kind of, getting better at knowing this is cool in country and, you know, maybe down this side is Burundurang and over there is Wurundjeri. And, but still, that's, how do we talk about us as a really big thing? And that's a massive challenge. It's like embedded in language. Yeah, we've had a similar conversation right now with um, different artists wanting to acknowledge where they've made work, where they live, and and then acknowledge where they present work um, and those sort of three different spaces. And so then a lot of people have sort of taken on this notion of putting their Indigenous place name in their bio title or after their names. But by doing that, then you take away from Indigenous artists who that is such an important part of their culture. And just noticing that within especially the arts community, we haven't quite really thought about actually what that what those things mean and actually not done the little... I guess the next part of that is like permission from those groups to then start using those names and those words like it's one thing for us to learn them and know them but then are we just now taking something else from someone else <laughs> we've already taken so much and I think yeah I agree I think there's like some learning to do it I'm not really sure where that starts but maybe here's a good place to provoke I think on that it's interesting too and two points in that idea of is it taking something? Is it tokenistic? How do we make that meaningful? And I'm constantly battling with that when we do acknowledgements of country and trying to make that meaningful instead of just another thing that we do, like here are the toilets, here's my acknowledgement of country, you know. Not suggesting that today's acknowledgement of country was anything like that, but sometimes they are, you know. Um, and I think that's problematic. And then also in the context of um, what Dan was saying, you know, we don't have a, a word for Australia that we can even start with and I'm wondering and I have done no research on this so it's literally just a, a question that's popped into my head but are we thinking of it in the wrong context are we looking at Australia in our white gaze as a whole country when really we should be looking at it as re regions and that's that's what it should be you know that's just a question to put out there um as I have a comment just as far as um so my, my uh, work is mainly in design media, so um, in magazines and online um, work talking about architecture and interior design. Um, so for most of my probably seven-year career, um, I wasn't uh, consciously bringing my whole self to my work, so I, I was kind of approaching it as a very academic thing and um, you know this is what I do for a job I don't um, my culture is a secondary thing that I leave at home I don't talk about my Filipino-ness it's not relevant here um, and I think that's part of uh, the publications maybe that I was associating with so I didn't feel like that was a space to do that um, and recently I was asked by one of those publications to um, Write, I was commissioned to write uh, on a cultural work which is actually behind NGV. So it's a big, um, it's a very immersive sculpture called In Absence and it um, represents a lot of the, um, you know, the, the trauma of the stolen generations and the disconnect that, that, um, that exists still. Um, and it was very interesting to unpack it because it's by a um, Melbourne-based architecture firm uh, a collaboration between them, and they're both both of them were um, white uh, Aussie males, um, and the Aboriginal artist, the Indigenous artist, was uh, her name's Yoni Skes, and so she has these beautiful glass black hand blown yams that like exist in this beautiful sculpture. I haven't actually seen it finished, so I'm gonna hop over there after this and then take a little look. Um, but what I found really interesting was this idea that. Um, when I was approached to write the piece, I was approached to do it, I think, and I, it was almost implicitly said, 
um, because they don't have any women of, or people of colour in their writing team. And I'm not, I'm not uh, on their staff, I'm a commissioned writer. So it was a very interesting kind of like almost moment of pause for me, thinking, okay, you've, you've come to me. I'm not an indigenous person or writer, you know, who, who really should be telling this story, you know, and it, it's almost um, something that I feel uh, writers and, um, you know, people that create um, are wrestling with because how do you, and certainly that was what um, the, the conversation with Edition Office, the architects, um, kind of was, was about them really wanting to step aside and, and give that platform to Yoni to show off her work and, and it became what are you going to do and how can we best support it because we know that our voices are not the ones that should be um, in, in the spotlight. So yeah, something really, something really fascinating I think in the design and architectural media space it's often hard to say anything real um, and yeah, those, those issues I've, I'm trying to grapple with too. Um, I'm just conscious of time and people going back to work and things. So I just wanted to, if there's any other things to add on from Uhei or Shimona or anybody else in the audience. Um, just a quick response about the, you know, the fitting in a box thing. I think I really like that provocation because um, it sort of makes me think about how we perceive versus how others perceive ourselves. And um, in that sense, right, I'm just thinking of, in what is, the, what is the point of us even feel understanding our own identity? I think that was, that's probably a big question in my mind because, you know, coming here, I feel this question a bit more than when I was in my home country. But then when going back home, that question is still there because you don't feel like you belong quite anymore. So it's weird because you fit, but you don't fit. And then um, what I found interesting was that um, just a quick example, you know, I, so I was singing in a, a restaurant one, one time and then this lady who was very excited about jazz music and she came up to me during the break and she said, Shimona, you have such a lovely voice. You know, if I just close my eyes, you could be black, you could be white, you could be... And I was like looking at her thinking, oh my God, is this flattery or a weird racist slur? I'm not sure what to make of it. But she was very joyous and slightly drunk. So I went, thank you. And then... I kind of pondered it that night and thought to myself, you know, irregardless of whatever box she put me in, or maybe it was a compliment saying I don't live in a box, what was important to me was deciding my take on that and how, how strong I am in my own identity as whatever I look like to present whatever kind of music I like to make to whoever wants to hear. And um, that's sort of been my journey at this point. I think a lot of us have this not sure what the hyphen is and, you know, still figuring out our identity. And irregardless of whether we're Asian or, um, you know, Australian living in this country, I think that's an ongoing question that all of us have to make because we all come from who knows where, you know, really. Um, so that's sort of, yeah, my take on that. I suppose it's something that I brought up with uh, Sandra as well, the idea of the mestizo, which I guess is relevant to this conversation about multiplicity um, in Latin America and in the Philippines. So I'm married to a Salvadorian. 
um, if you ask them about First Nations or Indigenous things, they often just say like mestizo, everyone's mixed and you kind of are a bit of everything. And I suppose listening to conversation about First Nations as well, we often talk about it as if there's like First Nations and then everyone else is like mestizo. But in fact, I guess even I've been thinking about how for many of them, they are also incredibly um, complex and mixed in their heritage, whether it's like different you know, so many different cultures within First Nation cultures, so they might be mixed that way, or even many of them are, are, I guess, from parents who are from that kind of colonial white sort of background and that complexity that sits within someone who identifies as First Nations is very complex and not the same as all of us. But yeah, to think about that idea of multiplicity and mestizo and how we can whether we collectively can own that, but then, you know, that idea of ownership again, I don't know, don't have the answer, but yeah, that there are other places in the world where many people are thinking about that multiplicity as well. Um, <coughs> and on time, right? <laughs> um, and so, I guess, with all that, um, I just want to end with this little bit. The longer I live here, I'm sitting with words like wrestle, straddle, <laughs> juggle, um, as common threads between my shifting cultural identity, my work life as an artist and arts worker, dramaturg and facilitator, and my emotional being to hold multiple and layered complex difficult feelings and scenarios at the same time to mostly sit in the in-between. That perhaps this Singaporean Eurasian cis woman living in Melbourne, Australia will always be neither here nor there and everywhere at the same time. Um, the food will stay here for a bit more, so feel free to meand, like linger and finish the food. Um, feel free to take some back up to the office. Um, Thank you, Sadia and Fred from Asia Topa and Arts in Melbourne. Um, thank you, Dan Pavilion, Ollie and Nanya. Nanya? Nani? Yeah. Um, thank you, my six provocateurs, uh, who are now also lovely friends and colleagues, um, and, my, and all of you for coming on a not-so-cold, not-so-hot, typical Melbourne day. Um, Let's continue to wrestle <laughs> with some of these thoughts um, and, and, yeah, keep this conversation going outside of, the, of today. Um, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.